defiance, this open, absolute, willful, complete rejection of God and his will and his law and his, his priorities, his direction, just a complete pushing against that, removal of his name from our lives. There's another which for us as believers becomes even more dangerous, which is the sin that we fall into by seeking to do God's will apart from his ways. When we as believers look at the goal, the prize, the destination, and we use our own abilities our own tactics, our own strengths to try and accomplish that will, that goal, that ideal. Things like forcing other people to believe the way we believe, for example, where we know that it's good for people to believe, to become Christians, to put their faith in Jesus, and we will go to any lengths to make them believe, including to sin. Now, we usually don't recognize it. We wouldn't label it as that because we're Christians, we're believers. We wouldn't openly reject God, but ultimately, that's what we can fall into. In the story we're going to look at today in Exodus chapter 32, deals with this very issue. That was fun. I was waiting for that to happen, and it happened exactly like I thought it would. Because I didn't put the uh, scripture in the e-news this week, so I knew as soon as I said it, everyone's head was going to go down. And it did. The scripture wasn't in the e-news this week. Um, I've been wrestling with this message all week. We're looking at the story of the golden calf, and in light of what's happening in Israel this week, I was hesitant to just distribute a passage that discusses the judgment and the sins of Israel, because that's not what the message is this morning, but I didn't want it to be taken that way. But it is in light of the conflict in Israel that I prepared and preached this message, because we all of us, whether if it's because of that specific conflict or if there's another conflict in your life, we share that feeling of desperation, of despair, of often hopelessness when we come up against an enemy that seeks to destroy us. So I don't know, and this is what's so hard about the world we live in, it's possible, depending on what you do to get or not get news, that you've heard very little about the conflict in Israel. And some of you, because of what's available on the internet, may have spent eight or ten hours a day reading and watching and listening and discussing what's happening in Israel. So I'm never quite sure where everyone's going to fall, what our experience has been. Um... I'm somewhere in between those two. Um, I've kept as up-to-date as I can on the conflict. I've read some things. I've watched some things. I try to err on the side of eyewitness accounts, which things like Instagram and Facebook can give us first-hand accounts and interviews that don't get filtered through a news organization. It's been a heavy week, though, because no matter where you fall... Honestly, wherever you fall, even if you, even if you were to support the opposite side, it's a painful week. It's a painful situation. There's, there's 
losers on all sides of the battle. There's pain, there's death everywhere, and that is heavy and that is difficult. And it's in light of that that I preach this message. So in Exodus chapter 2, 32. Thanks. In the second chapter of the 30s of chapters in Exodus, we have what is one of the, uh, one of the few Old Testament stories that even in popular culture is still well known. Just to get the context. So we're looking at chapter 32, but if we flip back, and you don't have to do this, but I'm going to just flip back a little bit. In chapter 24, Moses has already gone up on the mountain. The people are camping next to Sinai. Chapter 24, before chapter 24, Moses goes up and he receives a, a significant portion of God's law, laws about things like social justice and slavery. The Ten Commandments are in there, as you probably know. And then in chapter 4, Moses and Aaron go before the Lord. And then Moses, in chapter, verse 3 of chapter 24, he comes and he tells the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then from there, Moses goes back up onto the mountain and he receives a lot more instruction. Many of these instructions in this second half are about things like how to, uh, how to build the buildings, how to construct things for the temple and, and the, the tabernacle, what types of clothes the priests are meant to wear. And it's in that second trip up the mountain that Moses comes down with the tablets and where we find the story of the golden calf. So as we start reading in chapter 32, verse 1, understand that Moses has already been up. He's received the heart of the law. He's presented it to the people, and they have accepted, and, and they have pledged themselves to obey it. Verse 1 says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, just a reminder, if you haven't read through or studied this passage, uh, Moses was not gone for a short period of time. The, the accepted amount of time that he was on the mountain, it's mentioned later, was 40 days. 40 days days. Now, I know as someone who is a leader in an organization, who's been a leader in other organizations, who has uh, formal education and management, that if you institute something and then don't reiterate, don't check in, don't follow up for 40 days, whatever that thing is, is not going to get done. It's just, not, it's just, it's just practical, right? 40 days is a long time, if I preached a message, something like calling us as a church to try this thing called serve first, and I preached that message once, and then I waited 40 days to even mention it again, by that time, maybe one or two of you would still be even thinking about it, let alone practicing it, praying it, things like that. Because 40 days is a long time to wait and to remember. 
And so I strategically find ways to bring it up in other sermons and messages to keep it fresh on our minds. 40 days is a long time. Moses is up on the mountain. They don't know what has happened to him. And they say to Aaron that they don't know what has happened to him, and they identify him as the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Now, our our first inclination there is to say that they have at this point completely forgotten about Yahweh. They have completely forgotten the Lord, their God, and they are just moving on entirely. And that's not really the case because even God himself identifies Moses and uses language. God says to Moses, the people you brought up out of Egypt. God uses that language, so there's some precedent for it, and we'll see in the rest of the story that they have not, in fact, completely forgotten Yahweh. It is a reminder to us and an indicator that they crave what is physical and what is tangible. Now, remember as well that this people that we're discussing is 40 days into having a formal religion, Not only did God give them new instructions when Moses first came down from the mountain, that was the first time the people of God, the children of Abraham, had ever had any kind of a formal religion, a formal law. So it's not just 40 days into into this new understanding, it's 40 days into any type of religion. And if you've ever walked with someone through a Christian conversion, those first few months, they require a lot of support, a lot of grace, a lot of teaching. And can you imagine having, I I can't imagine as a pastor planting a church entirely of new converts. It would be really, really difficult, let alone an entire nation. This is the situation that we are presented with. So they go to Aaron and the language that says they, they came together and said to Aaron, and they go up to Aaron, the language there suggests, in the word for, in the Hebrew describes them going to Aaron, the language in Hebrew, that word is often used as the word against, as, as in you would come up against someone in battle. So there's a degree of aggression here, which is echoed later as Aaron relays the situation to Moses. They come up against him and say, make us gods to go before us. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So they took off their rings. I'm going to do some summary so we have enough time. He receives the gold from their hands, and he makes a golden calf. And he says, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The people saw that. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, this is where things get interesting in this passage. There's a couple things. First of all, uh, this passage kind of informs and clarifies something that happens later in the Old Testament as God, um, at least we see it later, as God describes and as they set up the tabernacle. One thing that was beneficial in their religions in those days of having a graven image like an idol or something like an animal, like a cow, is you could fashion it in a way 
that you could point it in a certain direction. And so what they would do is they would have these idols, in the, often in the form of an animal, and if you looked at it, you could follow its gaze and see where it was looking, and that's where they would build their altars. And it was a form of reinsurance to the people that their false god, the idol, saw what they were offering. Because they could walk up to this altar, they could place their sacrifice on it, and they could look and see that their false god saw their sacrifice and received that assurance. What we see in Israel is that the presence of God would rest above the Ark of the Covenant, it wasn't, he wasn't the ark, he rested above it, but to prevent the Israelites from falling back into it, the ark of the covenant was hidden behind a veil. Now there's a few reasons for that, and that's not the sermon today, but what's significant for us today is that God called his people to a religion where their assurance was based on their relationship with him, not on the fact that they could visually see and connect with an image or an idol. One of the reasons the veil was there was to remind the people that they needed to have faith and trust in God and trust that he was watching over them even when they couldn't physically see the eyes of a golden idol or image. And they are working against that here which is really what this whole sermon boils down to. They made a calf that they could see, that they could touch, that was right in front of them. They built an altar before it so they could make sure that it was watching over them. The people would rather have a chunk of metal that saw them, a fake God, a chunk of metal that saw them, than a living God that saw them from afar. They'd rather, let me say that better. They'd rather have a chunk of metal that they witnessed seeing them than a living God that they had to trust that he saw them. Now, what's really interesting about this is when Aaron makes the proclamation, he says, he doesn't say, tomorrow shall be a feast to the golden calf. He doesn't come up with a new name for the God. He says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He uses God's name. And so what the people are doing here is they are not rejecting the name of the Lord. They are not rejecting their understanding of a relationship with him. They are not saying that it was some other God of another name that drew them out of Egypt and, and provided for them with signs and wonders. But they're taking his name and they're trying to embody it in something they have made themselves. So it's easy for us when we read this passage and as we opened up and talked about these two different ways that we can fall into sin, it's easy to view this passage as a complete rejection of Yahweh and everything that he stood for when ultimately what they thought they were doing was continuing to worship him. They were convinced that they were still worshiping Yahweh. Now, now, it did seem to be very clear when Moses came down from the mountain the first time what that worship should look like. And I don't want to give these people too much of a benefit of the doubt. They rejected the methods that God presented to them. But they still 
sought what they believed to be the ultimate goal, which was worship of Yahweh. Their sin was not that they forgot the name of Yahweh, but they tried to worship him in the way that was comfortable to them. That was the sin. And it doesn't tell us specifically, but if you had asked these people back in chapter 24, if they were the people of God and if they worshiped Yahweh, they would have said yes, and they would have been right. And if you would ask those same people in chapter 32, are you the people of God and do you worship Yahweh? They would have said yes, and they would have been wrong. In their minds, there was very little change. So God tells Moses about this. He sends him down. There's judgment. A number of the people are killed. We see that there is a remnant of people that didn't support this worship. It describes the Levites coming to Moses as those who were still faithful to God. They go around. There's a, a death penalty for, for a number of people that have disobeyed. And this is where things get really, really interesting. And this is the heart of the message today. In chapter 33, the Lord says to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. There's God using that language. To the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Stop right there. Skip to verse 4, which reads this way. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Now, if you read it like that, it really doesn't make sense, does it? And especially in light of the conflict that has been so publicly witnessed this week. And I'm aware, and I want to make sure we remember that the conflict in Israel didn't start in the last 10 days. And it's easy for us to just forget that it exists when it's, there's always tension, but it's been so... It's been so bad this week. And as I've learned and thought and prayed about it this week and the bloodshed and the death and the pain and the fear and the sorrow, when I read this, God sending an angel before the people of Israel and driving out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, God sending an angel ahead of his people to drive out Hamas seems like a reason to rejoice. That seems like a very, very good thing. They're not going to be unable to enter the land. They're still going to receive the land of milk and honey. 
And not only that, they're not going to do that by sacrificing and losing 80% of their population in, in death and in war, that God will send an angel before them to pave the way and provide the victory. And in, in an Old Testament world, in an Old Testament context, that was about as good as it would get. That you have all of these nations, all of these kingdoms that all have their gods and they all pray to their gods before battle that their gods would give them victory. And sometimes they won and sometimes they lost because that's what happens in war. But none of those gods ever actually did anything. For every nation around Israel, having a God that would actually show up and be real and send a a spiritual force ahead of them to grant them victory in war, that was the best it could be. And God says to Israel that he will still do that. He doesn't say, I'm going to send you back into slavery. He doesn't say, well, you're just going to wander in the desert and be nomads and scrape by a living. He doesn't say, you're going to have huge losses in war, and if you can come up with the right tactics, and you, if you can work out enough and get your swords sharp enough, maybe you'll have victory. He says, I'm still going to do it for you. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Because God finishes, he says, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, riches, abundance, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. It's really easy to read through. It's really easy to read through chapter 32 and look at the people of Israel and say, man, they just didn't get it. They just didn't understand. Moses goes up for a little bit, and we think they probably still had physical signs. Uh, the scriptures talk about the, the, the cloud on the mountain, which was still there, and um, we, we don't know for sure, but we assume that they were still receiving the manna to eat. God was still granting that to them. How could they be, how could they be so stupid? How could they be so ignorant? How could they lack so much understanding? And yet, here in chapter 33, we see the people of Israel understanding something that we today still often get wrong. Because they understood that even if they were guaranteed the victory over and over and over, even if they were guaranteed the land flowing with milk and honey, even if they were guaranteed all the riches of the world and peace and, and life for themselves and their children, even if they got all of that, but they lost the presence of the Lord in their midst, they knew it was cause for mourning. They knew it was cause for mourning. Moses intercedes later in this chapter, beginning in verse 13. He says, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. 
And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. There's more in the passage. Moses continues to speak with the Lord, but, but that's the end of the story. That Moses, on behalf of the people, Moses following the desire of the people even. And there are times where Moses goes to God against the desires of the people, but in this instance, Moses goes to the Lord with the brokenheartedness of his people weighing on his shoulders, his own brokenheartedness at the thought of moving along in this journey through the wilderness without the presence of the Lord. And he says, Lord, Lord, we are your people. He said, Lord, it is not enough for us to just have your power without your presence. That reminds me of a sermon I heard. It was my sermon. Nobody else remembers it. That's all right. (laughs) Get on Facebook, go back, watch the last six months of sermons. Moses says, Lord, it is not enough to only have your power. We need your presence. We need you here with us. It's not enough to just receive victory if you're not here in the midst of it. Even then, even those stiff-necked people, even those people that had been in poverty and slavery, and if you've ever worked with people that have grown up in poverty, you know that those chains don't release quickly. You know those chains don't release quickly. The physical chains of Egypt fell off. The physical restraints were abandoned and left behind. But the mindset, the trauma, the habits, the abilities of the people, those stayed. Because poverty and slavery are more than chains and your bank account. I think you understand that. If you don't think you understand it, you probably do because you know this. You know that if someone who's living in poverty wins $10 million, the likelihood that three years from now they have any money in their bank account is incredibly low because money doesn't solve poverty. It can solve a lot of problems. It can't solve poverty. It can't bring healing. And that's what was being experienced by the Israelites was They were a people that had been told what to do every moment of every day, and they were suddenly released into the wilderness to try and be a people that could govern and regulate themselves, and that's a very, very difficult process. It doesn't remove the judgment. It doesn't mean that they're excused from their sin. It just is what the situation was. But even those people, those broken, tortured, hurting people understood that without the presence of God in their midst, power alone was a reason to mourn. And so now, thousands of years later, what do we do with that? How do we structure our lives? How does this change the way we pray? How does this change the way that we live? It was, so, it was so poignant this week as I 
saw the pain and suffering on the news. I was so tempted to pray in those moments, God, would you just fix this? Would you just make it go away? Would you just, would you just get rid of the ammunition? Would you make guns stop working? Just fix it. Just fix, just fix the problem. And that prayer stands in opposition to this passage. Because God was prepared to just fix the problem of the inhabitants of the promised land. And the people of Israel mourned against that. And so we as the people of God do and should seek God's power, his work, his action. We seek the miraculous hand of God to intervene in the Middle East and in the middle of our own lives and our homes and our situations. But we also must recognize that without his presence, that is ho- it's a hollow victory. That every time we go to God with a request of a situation in our life, whether it is sickness, whether it is financial difficulties, whether it is relational with another person, whether it is victory over even our sin, that as we seek his power, we must also seek his presence. Even in that last one, that that sin, that even if I say to God, God, I have sin in my life, I just can't, I can't stop drinking. And I'll do well for a little while, and then I get too stressed, and I go to it. That if God, speaks, if God were to speak to you in that moment and say, I will tomorrow cure it forever. I will remove your taste for alcohol. I will remove that desire. I I will give you the strength to stand up. I will give you the strength that when you are anxious, when you are burdened, when you are tired, when you are weary, that you will not turn to it. And he says, I will give you that. He says, just send me a letter and let me know how it goes. And he said, wait a minute. God, I want that victory in my life. but don't give it to me alone. God, I want that victory. And that's a, I mean, that's a victory. If it's sin, that's a victory that just makes you more like him. What what more could we want than that? We can want and desire his presence. You say, well, God wants us to not sin. That's a good thing. Of course it is. So many of the snares of the enemy that trap us and hold fast to us, we stumble into because we take our own paths to God's kingdom. And they are paths that look good to us, but they are not safe to travel. So we need his presence. Before we do, before we go, in the midst of all of the victories, do we seek that? Because you can have faith and pray for miracles and not be looking for his presence in your life. You can believe in him, believe that he exists. You can pray 
receive answers to prayer, see the hand of God in your life as he works things together for your benefit and the benefit of those people that you care about. You can do all of those things and yet be separated from the presence of God. You can receive deliverance from your sin, walk out of your sin, and forget that the reason we're called out of sin is so that we can dwell in his house. We can have intimacy with him. That the, the, the whole point of removing the sin is to be joined to him. And when we live in that, when we live in that victory without presence, we are so at risk. We are so, so at risk of being caught up in the traps of the enemy. So would we be a church, would we be a people that in all things says, God, we want your power in our lives, we want your victory, we want your deliverance, we want to see your hand at work in our midst, but Lord, do not allow us to walk a step without walking it in your presence. The uh, evangelist that I interned with used to use this phrase, it was called practicing his presence. It was just doing things in your, in your life that would remind you to walk in the presence of, of the Lord. So maybe it was a sticky note on the bathroom mirror so that if you stumble out of bed, groggy, in a haze, you go to the bathroom, you look up, before your brain has had time to even wake up and think about how it wants to start the day, you're reminded of his love to bring his presence into your life. When I was in college, after this, I, uh, I would sometimes put something in my pocket, something a little heavy, just to remind me. And I'd be walking, I'd it'd twist weird, what's in my pocket, and I'd feel it. Or I'd put my hand in my pocket as I was standing there talking to someone. I'd be reminded of the presence of God and to bring the presence of God into whatever I was doing at that time. When I started exploring a relationship with my wife, um, prayed about whether or not we should start dating. And I was very, was very aware of my own desire in those days to quickly get into relationships for the wrong reasons, and so I was terrified of going into it for the wrong reasons. I actually took a little inch and a half long nail, and I just would drop it in my right shoe in the morning. And uh, it was long enough, it didn't like ever flip up and like go through my foot. I wasn't gonna, I, didn't have, I never had to go to the hospital. It would stay flat, but it was uncomfortable. And as I was walking, it would slip into a part of my foot that hits the ground harder and it'd be painful and I'd have to kind of like shake my foot a little bit and work it into a more comfortable spot. But every step I took for two or three weeks, every step I took, I was reminded to walk in the presence of God. I'm not recommending you do that. And if you do, make sure it's a clean nail, just in case. But I, I could have just 
In, in, in that time, I could have prayed for a decision. I could have said, God, just give me a sign of what I'm supposed to do. But 12 years before I even thought of preaching this sermon, I had some awareness that it was about more than just getting the right decision. God could send me an email and say, yes or no. But being led into a decision, and again, we look at that and we say, well, there's a right and a wrong. It's yes or no. It's do or don't. It's it, it's simple, just God give us the answer. He says, I want to walk with you to the answer. I want my presence to go with you. That's the relationship I want with you. Because God's not an instruction manual or a how-to manual. He's our Father that wants to be in a relationship with us. Heavenly Father, God, we want to see you work in power in our world. We want to see peace in the Middle East. We want to see relationships and families restored. We want to see healing. We want to see cancer removed and eradicated. But Father, may we not take a step without your presence here with us. Let us not only seek the instructions. Let us not only seek the right ways of doing things. Let us not seek only the end goals that we perceive for your kingdom, but may we seek that relationship with you. As your church, may we come together in intimacy to seek who you are. That when our leadership has decisions to make, that we don't come together and look first to strategies, but we look first to invite your presence into our midst because we want to walk in step with your spirit. We want to be a holy people free from sin, but we don't want to be a people that just doesn't do the wrong things, but we desire to be a people who are in right relationship with a good and holy God. May we be reminded this week of that culturally and religiously primitive group of people in the desert who knew enough to mourn when they found out that your presence would no longer be within their midst. And may we be brought to that same place of repentance if we have been willing to walk without you. In all that we do, may your spirit be in our midst. May we follow in the footsteps of the Son as we seek obedience to the Father. Lord, we ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.